Welcome to the Cambridge Tech Podcast, talking all things technology from the heart of the UK's tech capital. Here are your hosts, Faye Holland and James Parton. Hi, I'm James. And I'm Faye. So, James, we're here. It's, this is our first episode of Cambridge Tech Podcast. How do you feel about it? Well, I'm obviously excited. It's been a whole ton of work, but we're here. It's Sunday. We're ready to go. Absolutely. For our first episode, I'm delighted to welcome Scott White, CEO of Pragmatic Semiconductor, who is a six-time entrepreneur, and he's going to talk to us about his journey today. Scott, hi. Welcome to Cambridge Tech Podcast. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you. Very happy to be here. So let's talk, let's talk about you to start off with. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, but let's go before Pragmatic. So even right back to when I was reading up about you, you were talking about your degree and your thesis being real groundbreaking topics. Let's go right back to the beginning if we can. Sure. So, so my degree was in mathematics, pure and applied maths and computer science. My degree was in machine learning. I wouldn't necessarily say it was groundbreaking, but certainly it was at a time before machine learning had all the hype that it does today. Um, so in that sense, it was, it was a slightly more kind of arcane and interesting, uh, you know, different field to be playing in than, than now where it's sort of very much mainstream and, and understood why that's beneficial. So that was that was interesting, but um, you know, I was also very clear coming out of that degree that um, what excited me was not just technology in its own sake, but but actually what you do with it. So um, after looking at a number of options, I ended up working for McKinsey Management Consulting for for a number of years, which was great experience to get sort of straight out of university. But ultimately, I found frustrating because you never actually got to do anything. You just spend all your time advising people on what to do. And sometimes it happened and sometimes it didn't. So uh, so I left after a few years there and joined a telecoms research center in Australia, uh, where I spun out my first company. And so since then, I've basically enjoyed building you know, building, growing, and and ultimately selling tech companies. So Pragmatic is company number six for me. Um, but I guess the bit that I would say is quite different about Pragmatic from previous companies is Pragmatic is very much a deep tech company, you know, long duration of fundamental technology development as compared to most of my previous companies, which were more regular high tech, where, you know, it's doing interesting thing with technology, but you know the the risk was around product market fit and how you build a business rather than does the technology fundamentally work so over the past 25 years you, you as you mentioned this is your sixth business and you've you've successfully sold five already so certainly a serial entrepreneur that triggers a whole bunch of questions um i'll try not to fire them all at you in one sentence um Obviously, to create a company, it's kind of all-consuming in terms of the focus and the drive to get that idea to uh, uh, to market. So, where do you find that drive from to do that kind of six times? And I guess a, a supplementary question to that is: when do you know when to let go? When's the when's the right time to sell? 
so I think the first part of the question is fairly easy, which is actually if it's if it's interesting, and exciting, then then that's the motivation you need. Um, you know, I've, I've never been one to to do a job just because that's what you do and you turn up nine to five and and then you go home. Um, and so you know, the exciting thing about building a a tech business is you're doing you're doing exciting things with technology, but also you're you know, you're trying to create something. And and so the uh, you know the, the benefit you get in terms of the emotional satisfaction of what you can do, seeing the use of your you know, your product in the real world when it finally gets out there, you know that's that's really the primary motivation. In terms of when to let go, that's a trickier one. Um, I mean, it's fair to say that a lot of times it it happens naturally, or or to a certain extent gets forced upon you. You know, the natural points in a company's evolution where there are. You know, logical times for a company to be acquired. So it's not necessarily that in in all those cases I've set out to to sell the business at a particular point. It's just you know that there's there's been a a point where either we had to you know double down on really scaling the business model or raising a whole load more capital. And actually, you know, if there's a better alternative to incorporate that into a larger company that can can actually take the technology forward, that may be a better outcome. So so in terms of that, you know, when to sell. From my perspective, it's you know it's a combination of obviously the you know the financial benefit aspect of that, um, but perhaps even more importantly, what's the what's the best way for the technology to continue to grow and develop and, and flourish and actually be successful in the real world? And and sometimes it's it's better to combine it with with another company. Having said that, you know with Pragmatic, I think because we've got such a fundamental fundamentally new technology platform that is globally unique. The aspiration is very definitely not to sell, and to build it into a sustainable, standalone, profitable business. Mm. Interesting. So it it kind of sounds like it's one of those. You, I read it somewhere. You'd said about dreaming big but executing small. You know that kind of seems to be your overall ethos. Um, is is that the case? You know, is that is that what you you'd like to have the big vision and do technology for purpose, but keep quite moderated in in what your approach is well i think from from everything i've learned over my career that's what you have to do so you need you need the big vision as part of that motivation you know this isn't just about playing around with technology for the sake of it and selling a few widgets you know there's a there's a kind of mission and a purpose in what we're trying to do and the bigger you can make that vision and that aspiration the more exciting it can be and and the more you can motivate yourself, your team, your investors, and so forth. So, so I think the vision is important context, but actually the bigger the vision is, the less tangible it is on a day-to-day basis. So you have to translate that also to what does this mean in terms of what you focus on right now? What's the next step along that, uh, along the road to that vision? How do you show you're making progress towards it? Because actually that, you know, the ultimate culmination of the vision, even if everything goes really well, might be 10 years away. So you know that that executing small is about you know finding the the right immediate steps that allow you to focus on something that you do day to day and show that you're making progress towards that vision. So before we get into the details of pragmatic, why, why don't we kind of just take a step back and and help the audience with some definitions? I think we're all guilty of throwing terms around and not fully understanding what they actually mean or we might all have slightly different interpretations so i guess from your perspective how would you how would you describe the difference between a deep tech business and a and a tech business yeah it's a very good question um because there isn't i think a universally accepted definition the way the way i always think about it is 
a normal tech business, you are using technology to deliver an, an interesting and innovative product. So, you know, in the semiconductor space, for example, that we're involved in, uh, you know, most fabulous companies that design a chip based on an existing semiconductor process, I would consider to be normal high-tech companies. There's, there's no fundamental technology risk that it won't work if you follow the right rules and design the chip appropriately. So it might be very innovative in terms of the application it's targeting and what it can enable, but the technology risk actually is relatively modest. The, the risk is really around, is the market there? Is the product fit right? Can you scale it? Can you sell it? You know, it's about execution on the the commercial um, side of the business based on a you know, a, a proven technology. Mm. By contrast, deep tech is where the primary risk in the business is: does the technology actually work? And there tends to be an implicit assumption there that if it works, the market opportunity is huge. Um, you know, the, probably the the most obvious category, you know, these days is something like quantum computing. You know, everybody knows that that's absolutely game changing when it works, and there's real proven quantum supremacy, and there's a set of applications where that undeniably, you know, has massive opportunities. But the fundamental challenge is, you know, can you robustly, repeatably make quantum computers that have the right characteristics to actually do that? And so, you know, again, what we're doing at Pragmatic is is similar in that vein in that it's, it is developing a new semiconductor manufacturing process because it has characteristics that are dramatically different to silicon that address a, a different set of opportunities. The market potential is absolutely massive, and that's never been a question that we've really had to, had to struggle to sort of show where this can be used or to get customer interest. The fundamental challenge has always been about, can you actually make the technology work? Can you show it's repeatable, scalable, um, producible? Yeah. So, so on that same vein, can we do the explanation of of silicon, and then then we can move on to actually where you where you differentiate? Sure. So, so silicon. I mean, silicon obviously is is fundamental to all of our electronic devices today, and and indeed most of the things we don't think of as electronics, like cars and washing machines and things like that, as we as we've seen over the last few years in the the semiconductor supply chain crisis. That you know, if you don't have supply of silicon chips. Everything else kind of breaks. Um, so that has been that has been driven by a progression of most people have heard the term Moore's law, where silicon has progressively driven to smaller and smaller feature sizes that allow better performance, lower power, more complexity in the circuit, and so forth. And you know that's really what's driven the the increasing sophistication of our electronic devices. The downside to silicon is the materials are very highly engineered and hence very, very expensive fundamentally. Uh, and the processing of those is even more expensive. And over time with Moore's law has got progressively more and more expensive, which is why a, you know, a fab now costs $10 billion or more for a laser generation silicon node. And that works in the economics of normal electronic devices because you can afford the, the production cost, the material cost being high if you can fit smaller and smaller devices. And so now for the same price as what you might have paid 10 years ago, you get something that does an awful lot more and we're all happy with that in our mobile phones and so forth. What that doesn't address is a large category of applications where you just need functionality that is good enough to do a certain job, but is fundamentally constrained in the cost point that is viable to do that. Uh, and so 
you know, a couple of examples of that. One that was sort of quite highly publicized, again, coming back to the, the recent supply chain crisis, was in automotive production. The things that were holding up production of cars was generally not high-end silicon chips that, you know, were at the bleeding edge of Moore's law. It was it was components that are made on very old semiconductor technology to do fairly basic things like control the heated seats in the car. It's not fundamental to how the car works, but nobody's going to buy a luxury car unless it's got heated seats. So if you can't make that $1 chip, the entire car can't be sold. Um, you know, and that's an interesting category where um, you know, technology like ours can, can actually change the game there because it doesn't need it doesn't need Moore's law. It doesn't need all that development functionality. It just needs to do a simple job. And if you can do that in a more effective way with a supply chain that's more scalable and adaptable, then that's very compelling. The other category is things that you wouldn't even think of doing today with electronics. And probably the easy example there is something like smart packaging for consumer goods. So you think about the the plastic packaging that is on most of the things you buy in a supermarket today. You know, the, the item itself you, know, you might buy for a few dollars. The packaging itself will cost a few cents. There's no way you can justify putting a silicon chip on there that's going to cost tens of cents. You know, sort of, you know, best case or you know, maybe a few cents because that's more than the packaging itself. But if you can drive that cost point down, then actually even relatively simple functionality like radio frequency identification, having a unique ID that you can wirelessly read on that item has huge benefits in terms of how you can manage the supply chain for those products, have better inventory control, better control of uh, anti-counterfeit and you know, um, supply chain uh, guarantees that you know it has come from where you expect it to come from. Uh, it also, what we've been seeing most interesting recently, has really exciting benefits in terms of the end of use of that packaging. You know, there's obviously a huge focus now on, well, how do we reduce single-use plastics in things like packaging? It's not as simple as just saying plastic packaging is bad because if you take the packaging away, the food that was inside it goes off quicker and you have more food waste. So it's, it's not a single-dimensional problem. But if you can enable better models for recycling or reuse of packaging, which things like RFID um, you know, can, can really affect, then, then that creates a huge benefit. So, you know, again, it, it kind of comes back to you know what we're looking at is things where our technology is allows things to be done in a dramatically different way from silicon that really move the needle on the the nature of the applications that can be deployed and and how that can be kind of beneficial in day to day life. Great. So let, let's. I want to come back to RFID in a minute and and the decisions you made around there and the internal conversations that you had. Um, but do you want to just talk us through the product? And you've actually it's it's no use. It's as much use as a chocolate teapot to everyone listening in. But you brought. We've seen the the integrated chip. Do you do you want to actually just talk us through what the product is and why it's different? Sure. So and yeah, it's sort of hard to hard to describe verbally. But um, most people will at some point have seen. A, a silicon wafer in a you know even just in sort of the way the press has covered the the semiconductor industry recently so so most uh well all silicon chips are made in these large look like sort of silvery rigid wafers these discs of material 
Um, silicon is effectively, you know, processed sand in very simple terms, but very, very highly processed sand. Um, and the the fabrication process to make the chip uh, is a series of processes that change the characteristics of the silicon to create the required semiconductor characteristics that then create the transistors and diodes and other devices you need and interconnect those together to form a complete circuit. And then at the end of the process, those wafers, you know, which have the chips fabricated on them are diced up into individual sort of little little squares of silicon, which is the silicon chip. What you see if you'd open up your laptop or um, phone or something is actually not the silicon chip. Usually you'll see something that looks like a, a black plastic box. Um, that is the packaging around the silicon chip, which is put there in order to protect the silicon chip so that that fragile silicon doesn't get damaged and it allows it to be easily interconnected to things in the outside world, like on a, on a PCB. By contrast, in our technology, we have no silicon in there, so we don't start with that silicon wafer. Um, we basically start with a, uh, we usually use a glass carrier onto which we coat a very thin layer of plastic. And then on top of that, we deposit all of the individual material layers we need to build up the semiconductor devices and their interconnects. And then at the end of the process, we peel that off the glass carrier, reuse that through the process, so it's not part of the bill of materials, and then dice the the flexible wafers up into the individual chips that then get directly integrated. So what that means is we don't have any of that. We don't have any of the cost of the silicon wafer, which is very, very high. We don't have any of the processing costs of changing the characteristics of the silicon wafer. And these are the bits that are most energy intensive and most long duration in, in silicon fabrication. Uh, plus, at the end of the process, you don't need to package it to protect it because it's inherently thin and flexible and easy to integrate into pretty much anything. So that all leads to something which allows very novel form factors for electronic devices. You can have these thin, flexible um, systems, but also can do that at a cost point that's an order of magnitude or more lower than silicon. I mean, we've seen it. Uh, we'll put some photographs up yeah, maybe on cool. social so everyone else can see it. But, I mean, so how robust is it? How much... Yeah, yeah. How ruggedized is that? Uh, that's that's actually a fairly complicated question to answer because it all depends on what kind of environmental effects mm. you're talking about. So, for the types of applications we target, there are huge benefits to that form factor in that if you're putting electronics into something that inherently is a thin, flexible product form factor, like like packaging for consumer goods, mm. then actually starting with something that is thin and flexible is a massive advantage in terms of durability. And and that also flows on to sort of other aspects of durability like resistance to shock and impact. Mm. So even if you're putting this on something rigid like a the side of a bottle, uh, if you do that with a silicon chip and that bottle going down the production line or through a, you know, while it's packaged in a box gets knocked against other bottles, the silicon chip can get fractured very, very easily. Mm. Whereas our technology is fundamentally more robust to that kind of environment. Mm. On the flip side, there are other things that silicon is is going to be more robust for. So, you know, we're not really optimized for things that might have very high temperature environments, right. for example, you know, or, or other kinds of stresses. Um, so, it's a case, it's a very much a case of it. Yeah. You know, it depends on sort of what's the right fit with the applications. Uh, but yeah, for us, it's about the the form factor we have fundamentally is a better fit for the for the types of applications we're targeting, which are sort of use of electronics in in everyday objects rather than in you know typically high performance boxes of electronics where you can mm. you know, you're protecting the silicon. Yeah. Okay. No, that's really interesting. And I think seeing is kind of believing, isn't it? Absolutely. It's incredible. <laughs> um, let's change gears slightly. I mean what you're describing feels complicated, you know, 
innovative it's groundbreaking that sounds really capital intensive to me so i believe that you've been raised around 150 million is that is that um, accurate we're on our series c right okay so right. it's effectively three rounds of funding okay although you know some of those have had multiple closes based on the timings of when individual investors yeah. have come in yeah but it's essentially three three rounds of funding. okay um sizable amount of money but yeah yeah and obviously you've done this five times before in other companies what's your learning through that, that kind of process and that, and that experience so perhaps just to actually wind it back slightly first so we started pragmatic in 2010 and actually the first five years we we built the company effectively privately right um funded by management a bit of seed investment but largely by early customer contracts and and also supported by government grants mm -hmm. and so for us that was that was sort of how we got to proof of principle to show that actually we could do the fundamental bits that were needed for 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 what we were trying to achieve and then we started down the the route of raising institutional venture capital so our first round was cambridge innovation capital and arm okay. um cic obviously being a, a great financial investor but arm was sort of absolutely critical in the early days in validating that the technology was was real and and so that's perhaps the first point on on funding strategy is firstly, you know, timing is key. You know, when do you when do you try and get investment? Who do you get it from? Yeah, you know, and finding the right investors for the objectives of the company at that point in time. So for us, having you know the strategic investment as well as long-term patient capital from someone like Cambridge Innovation Capital was really important for us because we knew this wasn't going to be a case of in two years' time everything was going to be, you know, on the yeah. market and yeah. Uh, and selling, so you know, we needed that that patience, and we needed the strategic validation and the collaboration we've had since then with Arm. Similarly, in our second round, we brought in Avery Dennison, so they led our Series B. Uh, Avery Dennison, perhaps less well known here, but they are a very large company, six billion dollars or so in revenue, I think. Mm. Um, and they, apart from all the other business, have developed into the leader in RFID. So, you know, we'll come back to RFID, but you know, we knew at that point that that was a key target application space for us. So having a strong partner in that area, again, was, was key validation for the business and for other investors to get comfortable, as well as being really important in terms of how we've developed the business since then and having that close relationship uh, as, we've, as we've refined the product. Um, and then our Series C was was much more around scale up of the business. So the trigger for our Series C was getting our first fab to the point where we could consistently show good production yield and production throughput. So this was now at the point where the technology risk that I mentioned earlier, yeah. sort of the, the fundamental element of deep tech, really wasn't there anymore. Okay. You know, it never entirely goes away, but you can basically say there is no, you know, we're now at the point where we can say this works, it's repeatable, you know, we can scale this up. Mm. So actually you then can move into a different mode and a, and a different level of aggressiveness in terms of how you scale it up because you don't have any fundamental technology challenges to solve anymore. That's really interesting that you, even at the point in series A and B, there was still that degree of risk. Very much so. Um, you know, I mean, as I said, we, we got to proof of principle by series a but in our case that meant we could we could kind of make a transistor mm. you know on a flexible substrate now that's a an awfully long way away from a fully qualified integrated circuit manufacturing process so translating that into pilot production where we where we showed 
you know, effectively, you know, between series A and series B, it was about showing that we could take that and, and make it into an, an end-to-end process for, for making entire integrated circuits. And then with, you know, between series B and series C, it was about taking that pilot process, transferring it into our own fab where we could control all of the process parameters properly to get the right production yields and show that this wasn't just something that worked well on a Friday afternoon when everything goes well, yeah. but you could actually do, you know, every single hour of every single day of the week consistently and get the same characteristics and hence the right yield from the process. Mm. And then I guess the, the follow-on question, which is obviously linked to the to the capital required, is the business model. So you, you took a decision to retain the technology rather than licensing it. And then you've also then taken that step to actually create your own manufacturing capability. Again, those sound like big decisions with big ramifications. Um, I mean, talk us through that kind of that thought process and the kind of different paths you, you could have gone down and why you ultimately chose to go down that path. Sure. Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting question. When, when we started the business, we, we kind of didn't have a, a business model per se locked in, but but it's fair to say at the time, sort of, we thought probably the most likely route would be get the technology to a you know, point where we could prove it and then, and then license it to existing players in the industry. Mm. What we discovered at the point where we'd sort of got to that proof of principle was two things, really. One is the potential for the technology was much larger than we might have anticipated. Right. And so there was sort of an element of, do we really want to let go of this and, and give away that that potential additional value to someone else? But secondly, also because of the way our process had had developed as we'd, as we'd sort of invented and innovated on it, it was clear that this wasn't really a model that you try and retrofit into an existing production environment. If you do that, you kind of lose a lot of the benefits of the things in a process that we can eliminate compared to something like silicon, say. So it, it was very clear that the way you took most advantage of this was by building a greenfield fabrication process um, where you could really capture all of that value and that sort of then implicitly led into the model of, well, and if we're going to do that, then that's probably, you know, the people that need to do that is us because we understand the process and, you know, we're, it's going to be hard to convince someone else to take the risk of investing in the manufacturing if we can't show that it, it works ourselves. So we may as well do it ourselves and then take take the benefit of that and continue to scale up. So, yeah, it sort of naturally led into, you know, the route where, you know, we thought we could create the the biggest value out of what we'd invented was by going all the way down manufacturing. And this is, you know, talking a little bit earlier about sort of that combination of sort of the big vision aspiration versus versus execution. If if I'm if I stereotype slightly, it's perhaps one of the differences between a lot of companies in the UK versus pretty much every venture company venture funded company in the US. In the US, the the venture world is all about how much value can you create. Uh, it is maximizing the upside and spending whatever you need to do to get there. By contrast, the default UK approach has a tendency to be, how do we minimize the amount of money we need? How do we minimize the amount of dilution we have to take from investors? And you know, what can we do with that? And so it's much more about managing downside risk uh, and, and minimizing dilution and making do rather than saying, how big can we make this? What would we need to actually make that happen? And then how do we go out and, and find the right investors to, to make that a reality? And so you know, as I've been through in my career, you know, building companies in, in Silicon Valley, I wouldn't say we're entirely the Silicon Valley model. I think there's some downsides to to that in terms of, you know, 
lifestyle and you know ability to sort of sustain that over a long term and you know uh, allow people to have mental health balance mm. you know balance between work and life but so you know we, we're really trying to sort of build a mix of that where we've got that big aspiration uh, executing on it but trying to do it in a way that also actually works for you know having people stay sane over the long term rather than just you know, have 100% of their their effort focused on nothing but work. I, I want to pick up, if I can, on this this homegrown semiconductor industry objective. You know, which is is obviously your objective. You want to do that. Um, you've shown the differences between the US and and the UK. Without getting overly political here, what do you think UK government needs to do to actually stand up to the promise for us being a set, you know, the UK being a centre for science, tech and innovation? Sure. So I think perhaps if I pick up on those last words first, we are already, I would say, you know, a very good place for science, tech and innovation. The uh, it's, it's very well accepted worldwide that we have we have extremely good, you know, world-leading innovation and invention in the UK. Where we've tended to be poor is at the later stage of commercialization, particularly in the case of capital-intensive industries like high-tech manufacturing. Uh, if we look at that specifically in the context of semiconductors, you know, 20, 30 years ago, the UK was at the forefront of of the silicon industry, and we have you know, we've lost that over the last several decades, uh, primarily because of a combination of fundamental economics and not having the right government support. So it definitely can't be entirely laid at, at, at the feet of government. But if you look at if you look at the fundamental drivers of silicon, it, it has had huge capital requirements. The only way you make the economics work in silicon is building very, very large fabs, and those fabs get larger with every new silicon node. And actually justifying that when you don't have the right domestic industries or the right, you know, you know the right geography around you to do that, I think would always have been challenging in the UK anyway, irrespective of of anything the government might have done. But certainly, you know, the, there's been a trend to sort of be happy to have manufacturing be outsourced. You know, we, we kind of have a view that manufacturing is considered to be a, a low value add activity and all the value is in the IP and the design. It's certainly fair to say there is a lot of value in IP and design and, and everything you do with it. But it's, you know, there is a vast difference between low value manufacturing and high value manufacturing. And that's proven today where you look at TSMC as the, you know, the largest silicon foundry in the world. They are... I haven't looked recently with all the shifts in this, but they were the ninth most valuable company in the world. Um, you know, it's not a low value business because everybody needs it. So what we're looking at with with what Pragmatic can do and working with sort of other semiconductor manufacturing businesses in the UK is um is there a case for saying the economics of what we're doing now are sufficiently different from silicon that that doesn't have the same fundamental drivers that it will all end up you know moving out to the far east because that's where you can do it at the scale that makes sense and, and you know that's been a a specific focus for us as we've developed the technology and the cost model around it is that this works in a very modular low capex world so you know although it is it's high capex in one sense you know 150 million is a lot of money in the context of the silicon industry, it's a very, very small amount of money yeah. given that that's funded, you know, all of our technology development and two fabs. You know, that's actually a really, really small amount of money in the context of what the electronics industry is used to. Mm. And that makes it viable, from my perspective, to continue to grow that and scale it in the UK. Not 
not exclusively in the UK because we have global customers. And actually, one of the big opportunities for us is with this modularity of our fab, we can put those wherever they need to be. We can put them on site in customer premises and deliver dedicated fab as a service to our customers anywhere in the world. And that's actually a really interesting model for how we scale the business. But behind that, we want enough critical mass of manufacturing in the UK that we can sustain the ecosystem and the innovation and the long-term value creation in the UK uh, and do that alongside other companies that are trying to do similar things in other other novel semiconductor areas like compound semiconductors. Yeah. And, and I think it's that working with other companies that are like-minded, that that's the way that we get change as opposed to, you know, everyone individually trying to do it or relying on the powers that be, shall we say, to do that. Yeah, I think the the industry alignment is is important, particularly when you look at things like skills development and uh, you know, in the talent pipeline for employees. You know, we, we are we're investing quite a lot directly in talent development, but actually the only way this works long term as a sustainable industry is you need an entire industry. If we're the only employer in the semiconductor industry or semiconductor manufacturing part of the industry, that doesn't really work long term. You know, we want other companies to also have similar value propositions to be successful and sustainable in manufacturing here. And then you can really create a, a compelling reason why somebody going through you know, STEM subjects and into university you know, should, should be involved in semiconductor physics because actually there's this really exciting industry they can play in when they come out. Yeah, and it, that's a great point and probably a whole other conversation, which is uh, bringing up the talent and, and making sure that the future talent understand the type of roles that are going to be emerging uh, for them when, they, when they're, they're ready. If you are a startup looking to grow in Cambridge, the Bradfield Centre offers a range of flexible membership packages which put you in control of your office and home working mix. There's a vibrant, collaborative atmosphere, on-site cafe, plenty of green outside space and regular member social events. We also offer a range of high-quality meeting spaces for hire and for tech event organisers, our auditorium, lakeside pavilion and atrium spaces are perfect to bring your communities together for in-person and hybrid events. For more information, visit bradfieldcentre.com or call 01223 919600. So coming back then to the ecosystem and, and the RFID thing was around when I was reading up, you weren't 100% sure that was the right way to go at one stage and then actually the whole ecosystem kicked in. So can you just talk us through, I guess the question is more around how important is the ecosystem and, you know, we're in Cambridge, how important is the Cambridge ecosystem as well as the broader semiconductors? So, so in terms of RFID, yeah, I, I kind of always joke um, with my team that that I was kind of on record when we started Pragmatic that of all the potential applications, the one I really didn't want to do was RFID. And there was, there was good reasons for that position at the time. So RFID is very much a mass market cost-driven opportunity. And as a general rule, if you're a small startup company developing a new technology, a, a play which is about I'm lower cost than established players is usually a fairly challenging value proposition to, to build successfully. However, as we, as we develop the technology, 
a couple of things changed. One is it became clear that the value proposition RFID was about low cost, but it was not just about the chip being low cost. It turns out that there is substantial leverage by virtue of the thin, flexible, and slightly larger area form factor of our chips versus a silicon chip that allows significant cost savings in the rest of the RFID manufacturing process. So although the value proposition to the end customer, the brand that is putting this on their packaging, is all about low cost, that doesn't translate to it's just about us competing against a silicon chip and having to be lower cost than that because that's the only element of the value proposition. So we can be lower cost than the silicon chip, but more importantly, we have huge leverage in allowing our partners like Every Denison to reduce costs elsewhere in the process to achieve that end value proposition. So that was sort of one key thing that, that shifted the mindset there and said, actually, this is something where it does really leverage the fullness of our value propositions, not just that we can make the chip cheaper, but that that form factor benefit has distinct advantages for our direct customers, the inlay assembly companies, in how they use the product. The second bit, which comes to the, the sort of ecosystem elements, is where is the biggest immediate opportunity for a novel technology? Uh, and if I sort of reflect back on how I was describing deep tech, that you know, the fundamental challenge is proving the technology works and there's an implicit assumption that the market opportunity is huge. While that is correct, what is also a challenge for deep tech is because the market opportunity relies on this new technology invention, by definition, most of those applications don't exist yet. So while the potential may be huge, translating that into reality can take an awfully long time because you've got to create everything that's needed for the entire product solution to take advantage of this amazing new technology that you've mm. invented. And so one way around that is if you can have a portion of the market which is just a drop and replace type solution. And that's what RFID turned out to be for us is it's an area which is in, in the context of the broader semiconductor industry, it is probably the individually the highest volume product and lowest cost product that is made in, in silicon today. And that had already grown to, well, at the point we made the decision, I think the RFID market was about 10 billion units a year. It's now more than 20 billion units a year, mm. even with all the downsides of silicon in trying to put this into you know, thin, flexible labels at as low cost as possible. And so what was very clear was that with our technology, not only was there an opportunity to sort of change, change that cost point and hence dramatically increase the market by a factor of 10x or more, but actually the ecosystem that we needed in terms of the, the direct customers, the partners, you know, the software solutions that go alongside that and all the bits that you need for people to adopt a full solution, that was largely in place already. So as a way to have a first application for our technology that didn't need us to develop the entire ecosystem around it, it was a great opportunity. Uh, and that's, I think, one of the, the classic challenges for deep tech companies once the fundamental technology challenge has been solved is finding that, that first real application. Often that ends up being a niche. In our case, we're lucky that the RFID niche is very, very large by itself. I mean, that by itself is a trillion unit opportunity. Yep. Can I just jump in there and come back to that point that you were just making? You often find with a, a true category creator, you kind of inherit the burden of educating the marketplace. You know, you have to educate investors, industry analysts, um, 
create the use cases and the applications of the technologies. I mean, talk us through that. You know, how do you how do you approach that? Because it, it's obviously a drain on your business in terms of having to do that. But obviously, the the benefit is clear for everyone. But then, are you also worried about fast followers, kind of, you know, in your wake, or have you got such a technology lead that you can afford to do that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the fast follower issue is actually less less of an issue in our case because we really don't have anybody mm. close to having a, a competing technology. But you know, the first point about the the potential sort of drain on resources of having to educate people is is a very real challenge. So it it requires. A very interesting balance between um, expansiveness and breadth and focus and and the sort of very competing requirements here that because we've got a technology platform, part of what we're trying to show is the the breadth of things you could do with it and the full range of opportunities. But at the same time, for those nearer term applications, it's much more focused on saying, you know, what are the specific applications like RFID and even within RFID, what are the specific use cases and end customers mm. that are really going to drive that? And so, for example, the the sustainability and circular economy applic applications I mentioned before, of, you know, using RFID to help drive better outcomes for recycling and reuse of packaging is yeah. one that's sort of come to the fore as being a, you know, a critical demand driver um, for what we're doing. It's top of mind for all the brands and packaging companies, and they've all got active programs and working on this, and, and our technology has a great fit there. So, so we're, yeah, we're still having to do a level of education, but it's, it's much more focused. It's to an audience that already has a, you know, a kind of key driver that, yeah. that is pushing them in that direction, and it's just about sort of opening up their eyes to the potential that actually, well, you didn't think you could do this with RFID because you always thought RFID was too expensive. Actually, that's changed now. Mm. And so you can rethink, you know, the kinds of solutions that might be viable. Mm. Let's move on a little bit now and talk about support for other businesses. So you're now an advisor in Deep Tech Labs. Yep. What kind of advice would you give to startups that are looking for that kind of patient capital that are coming to Deep Tech Labs? What what would be the top things that you would say to them? So, well, perhaps firstly, just sort of on on you know why why become an advisor? Um, you know, when day to day life is busy enough. Um, you know, I think I think there are, there are always two elements to that from my perspective. One is one is an element of giving something back to the community and the community in the tech environment is is incredibly supportive and sort of mutually encouraging and so you know i think there's a there's sort of you know i've taken advantage of that in the past in getting to where i am now so there's sort of a, an implicit obligation there to sort of feed some of that back in as much as possible and there's a variety of ways of doing that you know yeah. the cambridge angels for example do it by investing as well as helping companies deep tech labs have a great model for bringing in a, a kind of ecosystem of of people that that have experience in different areas to help do that uh, but also from a personal perspective one of the reasons i really like it is the best way to clarify your own thinking is try and explain it to someone else so actually in advising a company you know i help clarify my own thinking about well why why did i do it this way or you know actually you know what do i need to do next in this situation because you know i'm being forced to think through in a way that i have to explain it clearly to someone else as to you know how i would think through it what are the trade-offs i would think of so actually there's a there's a lot of direct value to me and to pragmatic in spending a little bit of time involved in other people's businesses helping them think through their problems uh, and you know taking the sort of 
you know, the learnings from that and the clarity I get from that back into the business. In terms of your specific question of, you know, what advice would I give it, it's very hard to answer in the in sort of generic sense, because I think I think one of the challenges is there tends to be a view that there's a, a one size fits all solution. You know, which investors are good, which investors are bad, how should I build my business? It's all very, very dependent on the nature of the business, the potential for the technology, the aspirations of the founders and you know what they want to do in terms of you know how much do they want to be trying to build a massive business? Do they just want to have a nice lifestyle business? Do they want to sell it to somebody early? Do they want to be in it for the next 20 years and build a multi-billion dollar company? There's so many different factors that feed into that. And so you know, the first advice I would always give is really think through your objectives for the business the viability of your technology to achieve those you know don't kid yourself about how unique you are if you aren't equally don't don't sort of miss an opportunity if you really do have something unique yeah. then and you could take advantage of it to make it bigger so so start by sort of a bit of internal reflection on actually what do you want to do and out of that you need to have a clear view on how big you want to make it what does that mean in terms of funding strategy and types of investors? And then you can go focus on saying, okay, we need this type of investor for this stage of the business, and this is how it might evolve. So, so linked to that, you've been quite open about bringing in external experts when you kind of hit roadblocks. You know, that, that kind of openness and that desire to kind of bring in external support, is that something that you've always had as a character trait or has that been developed through experience of building the five or six companies and is that something you've moved more towards as you've got older? Yeah, I think it's a mix. Um, I think it's always been kind of a natural character trait that you get a better answer by having multiple contributors to, to solving a problem. Um, but it's certainly... I've moved further in that direction, you know, as I've as I've got more experience, and and something sometimes it's about sort of having the confidence that you know mm. bringing in external advice is not an omission of of failure or the fact that you mm. know what you're doing is inadequate. It is a you know it's a recognition of fact and a recognition of your you know, you're trying to solve difficult problems that nobody's ever solved before. Yeah. So you know why should you expect that you're going to have the perfect answer to them? You know, and if there's other people you can leverage to help get those answers, that's a better outcome. So you know. I, I mean, that's a, a general thing in terms of business evolution, business building. I, I focus quite a lot on um, networking events and things like that, where you can just build a network of people. Often it's peers in the industry that you can just sort of reach out to and compare notes and discuss different ideas about common types of problems that you face as a business. And that, that to be honest, is not something that comes naturally to me. I'm, I'm not by nature a very outgoing social person i'm i'm very much the introvert naturally but i've seen the huge benefit of having you know a network of peers that you can draw on to 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 bring in advice and then i think what you're perhaps alluding to in your question is there've been specific cases in in pragmatics history for example where we've we've seen specific things and i've, I've taken very conscious decisions to bring in external experts in particular areas where we thought actually you know a, we may not have quite the right expertise in the business, so let's let's bring that in externally. And B, um, maybe we do have the right expertise, but actually we're buried in the problem so far that you know it's very hard sometimes when you've been buried in the problem for a number of years to have the clarity of perspective of saying, you know, are we kidding ourselves? Are we drinking too much of our own Kool-Aid here? Yeah. And thinking that everything's going to be right if we just keep plugging along in this direction. And, and so sometimes it's important to have a bit of an independent perspective to say, Okay, let's let's get out of the weeds for a second. Look at the bigger picture. 
is this the right direction? How can it be improved? What are the things maybe we haven't thought of? What are the things we have thought of but haven't really considered through properly? And you know that is something that, again, it's not a case of necessarily not having the skill set, but sometimes you have to do that independently in order to make it work. Yeah. And I, I remember this very clearly from my days at McKinsey. McKinsey employs a lot of very smart people, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're inherently smarter than the companies they're trying to advise. A lot of the value McKinsey brings is because they are coming in from outside. Mm. They're not buried in the day-to-day challenges of the of the business. They're not buried in a certain way of thinking about things because this is how it's always done in the industry. You know, just being able to come at it f- with a fresh perspective, without any underlying agenda, without any politics. You know, often it's going and talking to people in the company and just taking all of the ideas that they give you and structuring them in a way that you can then present to the top management in a way that is well-structured and, and understood. It's not that McKinsey has any unique insight. It's a, it's a process about how do you come in externally and do that. And so, you know, a good external advisor can do that, not because they're smarter than you, but just because they fundamentally have an external perspective. I think there's two real nuggets there. I mean, the first is, I mean, an extreme that I've seen, uh, not necessarily in Cambridge, but in certainly in London, is where you meet a first-time founder and they want to pitch to you, but before they're going to send you their deck or pitch to you, you have to sign an NDA. You know, it's kind of that that kind of lack of confidence, I guess, and this belief that their idea is so groundbreaking that someone's going to run off and steal it, even though you've got no time to even contemplate that kind of thing. So that openness, I think, is a really interesting point there. And I think the second point is, especially with technical founders, they sometimes don't make the connection of the value of what they perceived as softer skills. Certainly, you mentioned networking events in particular. You know, the Bradfield is a great example of somewhere that we try to create a hub where people can come together and share ideas, make new connections. Sometimes it's hard to get technical founders to engage in that because they want to get head down and build their product and they don't see the value in making those connections. So I think that's really interesting that you've seen real benefit from that. Yeah. And I, and I think that that latter one in particular, sort of the emotional aspects of things increasingly interesting to me from a from a scientific perspective of sort of analyzing actually how does how does that impact how you build a business? And and so for example, we do a number of internal training programs for our kind of mid-level and, and sort of senior managers around both management training but also leadership training and particularly mm-hmm. the sort of distinction between the two and and you know the way I kind of see that is a lot of engineers or scientists tend to be naturally fairly good at management. Management is all about you know it's process oriented. It's about you know the detail of do this, 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 and this, and you'll achieve this outcome. Yeah. And so people can tend to get the hang of that very, very quickly. Leadership, however, is is much more about sort of the emotional motivation factor. You know, forget the individual tasks. How do you make sure people have a common vision, that they're aligned on that, they're excited by it, that they are able to make their own decisions about what to do rather than you having to tell them all the time what to do? Mm. And that, as you grow a business, you know, when you're when you're 10, 20 people, you can afford to manage the business and control everything that goes on. Mm. When you've got 200 people, you can't. Mm. You have to lead it and make sure you've got, you know, people elsewhere in the business that are managing the detail. And and that that to me is very much it's about a yeah, it's, it's an important sort of transition as a as a founder and CEO to from management to leadership, and and yeah. certainly that's a yeah that's a journey I'm still on in terms of getting better at that sort of stuff. Mm. 
I'm slightly traumatised now by your comment about, I've just gone off on a tangent, um, your comment about being an introvert. And obviously I know you, I've, I met you a few years ago, but if you remember the first time we met, I kind of put you against a wall with the, this is going to sound really odd now, might need to edit this bit out, put you in front of a wall with a banner behind you and said, Scott, just talk to me for a minute because you're up for an award. Um, so apologies for that traumatic experience. Um, there's probably loads of people in your wake that have had that experience as well. I was going to say, um, Scott's not the only person yeah, exactly. you've traumatised. <laughs> Thanks, James. Um, but the, the, when you were actually talking on that interview, you were saying about how important it is to, to put yourself out there and also as businesses to put yourself up for awards and to raise your profile that way. I mean, you still do it. You just, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, you won a couple of awards at, at the Business Weekly Annual Awards. So congratulations. And I think um, Cambridge Innovation Capital related at that. Andrew was jumping up and down. Anyway, I'm getting on to the question. Is that something that you still believe people, companies should be doing at all different levels in terms of getting themselves out there, putting themselves up for recognition? I think it changes over the company life cycle. So early stage, I think it's a much more complicated question. There are benefits for certain types of companies of being much more in stealth mode. One of my previous companies, we were in essentially stealth mode for a couple of years and, you know, for us in that industry with what we were trying to do was absolutely the right thing to do. We didn't need external validation of what we were doing. We didn't need to build awareness because we had a very targeted sort of set of customer discussions already underway. So it avoided the distraction of all that external sort of attention. It didn't tell our competitors what we were working on. You know, there can be big benefits to, to not putting yourself out there in the early stages. By contrast, I think as you as you grow, you know, every company will get to a point where actually awareness is a key part of what you need. And and for us, again, this was sort of a big transition uh, a couple of years ago. We have historically at Pragmatic, we haven't been in stealth mode at all, but we've actually been pretty pretty limited in the amount of marketing we've done because we recognise that actually the most important thing for us to solve is the technical challenges. All of the awards and awareness in the world don't help us if we can't solve the technical challenges. However, you know, as of a few years ago, having solved the fundamental technical challenges where this is now about how broad can we make the, the market opportunity, how can we drive the right early adoption, you know, how do we make sure we can recruit the right people because they're excited about what we're doing, you know, that changes the dynamic quite a lot and, and hence we've, we've started to be much more explicit about you know, trying to get those messages out there and, you know, and increase our you know, capability and the, the sort of level at which we can do that. And so there's a lot of changes within the organization to do that. We're going through a whole bunch of sort of rebranding and, and refining our messaging. Again, some of that is not just about doing more, but sometimes it's doing it differently. Mm -hmm. um, in the past, most of our marketing messaging has been very technically focused. You know, we're talking to specific customers around specific applications and what they're interested in is the details of how is our RFID different from someone else's RFID. You know, that's very different from talking about, you know, the big vision of a fundamentally new semiconductor manufacturing process and how this can change the game for how supply chains are managed across the world. So, you know, a lot of, you know, what we're focused on now is less about the the minutiae, you know, the customers already understand what we're doing. It's more about how do we make sure we're also communicating the the right messages and the right excitement about what we're doing to to government, to to ecosystem partners, to current and prospective employees. 
that you know helps them understand the context of what we're doing and how it fits into the national agenda or to how it might play into their any individual employee's personal priorities around what they want to do with their life and their career. Yeah, no, great. And and I think it is, it's always about timing and evolution, isn't it? So um, yeah, that that's great. Am I allowed to ask a nosy question? Um, ultra marathons, how on earth do you get time to do all of that as well as everything else that you do? I, I have less time than I would like to do it, is probably the simple answer. So ultra marathons, for, for anyone that doesn't know what they are, it's basically races that are longer than a marathon distance. There's probably a lot of a lot of misinformation. Training for an ultramarathon is no harder than training for a marathon. Most of the official training programs you might get are broadly the same, but perhaps what's most important is is a lot of it is built up from long-term physiological and psychological changes. And so again, there's sort of some interesting analogies there with mm-hmm. with building startups. You know, building you know company number six is quite a different process from building companies number one and two because actually you've got a few decades of scars and experience and and you know an understanding of what you're doing and so when i first started doing ultramarathons which would have been probably well 15 years ago ish something like that maybe not quite that long you know i had to put a lot of focus on training both physical and mental to get to the point where you could go out and do it now i can go out and do it kind of with almost no training not as well as i would like but i can do it because i've got those many years of sort of historical base to build off and do it. So it's fair to say at the moment, given how busy things are with with pragmatic, um, I spend relatively little amount of time training and yeah, but still enjoy going out and doing races that I find fun right. because I just like being out in the mountains for long periods of time. No, it's, it's very impressive. I think I could possibly manage the marathon de Medoc, but that might be <laughs> that might be a very tear. That also has a certain appeal. Yeah, there is there is a there is an, a joke in the ultramarathon community, particularly for sort of trail and, and mountain ultras, which tend to have sort of these regular support points. That some people view it as basically it's a it's an eating event with occasional running in between them. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's probably sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, the eating part's fine. It's the mountain that I'm struggling with. <laughs> well that's fantastic scott i mean uh, we know you're super busy so very much appreciate your time coming onto the show it's been fantastic thank you i've enjoyed the discussion today's show was produced by carl homer of cambridge tv and supported by our media partner business weekly the cambridge tech podcast is available on all major podcast platforms and on cambridgetechpodcast.com If you've enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review. It will really help others discover the show.